severely messed Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job Hello, I'm of course your host, Jamie McKinley, and thank you again for tuning back into Just Get A Real Job podcast. This week's episode is a very special one, and not only because we have a very exciting guest on today's show, but also because it's the 100th episode of the podcast which is which is insane it's a bit of a weird one as well because when we took our hiatus from the podcast for five months we were on episode 98 so it's sort of been really close for so long but it's amazing to finally get there and just yeah what a remarkable sort of journey this has been for us it's mental like i sort of started this podcast in my room i wanted it to sort of be a toolkit for people in the same position as me in the creative industries and I sort of started by having conversations with friends and stuff but I never sort of foreseen it becoming as big a part of my life as it has and and getting to have the conversations and the quality of conversations that we got to have on this and I just never expected any of this so if I sound emotional um, it's because I am because honestly like it, this just I'm so grateful to have this outlet in my life and for that people listen is just it's remarkable so thank you to everyone that's ever listened to this podcast and thank you to everyone that supported us along the way especially sort of our patrons as well and everyone that's ever donated money or anything like that like it you know honestly we're so grateful so thank you anyhow that's my sort of emotional soppy bit out of the way but in order to mark the 100th episode of Just Get A Real Job we are joined by acclaimed Scottish band Father Sons lead singer and guitarist Ross Layton. I had the pleasure of meeting Ross while he was doing the coffee stand on this series of Screw. I used to go and sky from work and just chat to Ross loads as he made a lovely variety of hot drinks. We'll talk about this more in this week's episode, but it was great to have Ross on the podcast to speak about Father Son's journey, all four of their brilliant albums, you know, sort of early days, growing up in Kilmarnock, songwriting process, how he's recently been doing a lot more songwriting and composing with other artists as well. But yeah, absolutely loved this chat and I hope you enjoy episode 100 of Just Get A Real Job with Father Sons, Ross Layton. Hello Ross, how you doing? Thank you very much for coming on Just Get Real Job, it's lovely to see you. You're very welcome Jamie, it's lovely to see you as well. This is obviously the first podcast I've recorded in I think four months or something, maybe slightly less, but yeah, three or four months, it's been a while so it's good to be back. First of all Ross, do you just want to sort of introduce yourself, tell the listeners who you are, what you do, etc. So my name is Ross Layton. I have been a musician for my kind of my entire life. I play and write songs for a band called Father Son. I've previously written a bunch of songs for publishing companies and I write a lot of music with other artists and I sort of just job around and make music for a living. And make very good coffee as well. And make very good coffee and I'm just a self-employed man. Yeah, I think it's been an interesting couple of years, I think pre pre-pandemic. I was just like flat out with with tunes and stuff like that and then I just sort of after I wanted to have a little bit of an ability to dip in and out of other things because I kind of think for me I think lots of people during that period of time were very inspired with that sort of like isolation but I think I actually just really missed people and then also like being in a band lots of time you you are around lots and lots of people but you're not really like having a lot of conversations with a lot of people so 
I think I really missed that because I used to, I worked in pubs and stuff like that all the way through my 20s and then when I was about 25 I signed a record deal and a publishing deal and that sort of took me out of of that sort of level of interaction, no complaints at all, it was, it was, it's amazing, like I love making music and touring and doing that kind of stuff, but I just kind of felt like I needed mm-hmm. some sort of more direct just connection with people and I sort of fell into working a, a coffee job for STV for two series of Screw. Which is of course how I met you and like that, why I've not been doing this podcast for the last three months because I've been working flat out on that but like it was you know you were a very good people person everyone loved coming to you for coffee and it was honestly the best part of the day so. Well thank you very much I appreciate that I'd like I'd love people like I actually love blethering people all the time and I just like getting to know people and I like have some sort of weird tendency to disarm people or something like that but people just end up just telling me stuff and they go whoa maybe I shouldn't have told you that and I, I just think it's a, it's a very interesting thing about people especially at the moment and especially over the last like couple of years I think people are getting like you can kind of tell the the mass loneliness that's happening with people because as soon as you ask more than two questions, people are like, it's like you've turned on a tap and you can't like turn it back off. And like, I just kind of feel a bit, I think that's quite sad. I'm not, obviously, I'm not just blathering with people and working different jobs to like fulfill my own ego of being like, oh, people tell me lots of things. But I just think it's so close to the surface for lots of people. And for whatever reason, they're just not getting an outlet. So I think, yeah, I was, when I finished that job, the, the, my title sort of changed from... Uh, coffee shop guy to crew therapist I think but it's so interesting that that like need for connection that people have as well especially you saying that you felt like that after lockdown because like this podcast like like most podcasts in the last sort of three years or so sort of started in lockdown and it was this sort of desperation to connect and I've I've found like most people I've had on this have been like very very desperate to come on and like and they just you know the first five minutes maybe a bit awkward and then after that it's just absolute free flow and it's like people i don't even know and i'll be on zoom and and i'm like this person's very like keen to share their life story (laughs) but speaking of life stories the first question i have for you tonight properly is what does father son mean to you obviously been in the band for a long time now four albums etc yeah i mean we i've been in that band so i'm 30 now and me mark and greg have been making music with each other since we were 13 so like i've been making music in that band for longer than I haven't in my life. It's a massive part of my life. I think it's been one of those things that just, it was the best and is, has been like the best way to grow up. I think we got to just like make music and express ourselves, but also we're lucky enough to have the opportunity to kind of really travel around the world Mm. with like your two best pals in a sort of way where like outside of music we all have like different interests and stuff like that, but it sort of gelled us to be like, let's do this thing we think is cool. And for some reason, people are paying us to do it, and we get to go over all these experiences, and it really sort of kept us at, like it helped that we were such a tight unit from from being young. Yeah, I think it's been the most important relationship in my entire life, being in that band. I would say, and I think yeah, I wouldn't change it. Anybody that is in the creative industries or is in a band will tell you that sometimes it's you feel like you're knocking your head against the wall. And then you turn a corner and something mm. mental happens and you're like, you can never really be prepared for what's going to come up next. Mm. But I'm glad I have gotten and I'm getting to do that journey with people that I love. No, it's amazing. Of course, we'll sort of get into the, the journey that you've been on with the band and like your music career as we go on. But just to sort of cast your mind back on this podcast, we always ask people about their sort of earliest creative memory. Do you remember when you sort of first got into music? Like, were you like a young age? Were you like always very musical at school and like primary and stuff? 
play that. So I went to piano lessons when I was like five and like super duper hated them, didn't enjoy it and then didn't play the piano for a large maybe like 10 years after that. Played double bass all the way through school but the first sort of thing I really have a vivid memory of is, and it's quite a weird one because I didn't know Mark who plays bass and Fatherson really at all in primary school but we went to the same primary school. Him and Greg, the drummer, were friends and me and Greg were friends and then that sort of like became the link but we were the Beatles in a nativity play <laughs> when we must have been like 10 or 11. It's very modern having the Beatles in a nativity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bit different. A, a bit a bit different. I, I can't even really remember what it was but someone went to school with the other day sent me a picture of us and I'll, I'll show you that but like what I remember about that is this is going to sound very posh, right? But when we were growing up, we had like a boat that we had on Loch Lomond. So we had like a, like a speedboaty cruiser and a, we used to go up in tents and then we got a caravan and stuff like that. And that's like where we would go on holiday from like age nine to maybe 20-ish. Mm-hmm. That would be like where we would go on holiday. And I remember playing my guitar. I hadn't really been playing that long and I was learning these Beatles songs because I wanted to actually sing them and play them in the nativity not just sort of like mime along to the the sort of choir and stuff and I just remember like having printouts of like chord sheets and stuff like that and learning Penny Lane and learning Long and Winding Road and stuff like that on my guitar on this boat like in the summer before like we were going back to school to do this play and stuff like that and it was just like that's, that's the first time that I can really pinpoint going like ah that was like what I really wanted to do and, uh, you know, I'm still doing it. The Jane being the Beatles also, like, influenced that because they're such, like, a... I don't know, I feel like a lot of people's first band they, like, get into is the Beatles. That was the, for me, it was as well. That was the first band they ever got into is the Beatles. I think, to be honest, at the time, it never really registered. My mum and dad never really listened to the Beatles. They listened to the Beatles was, like, in amongst a whole yeah, bunch of course. other stuff. So it was never really very Beatles-focused. But yeah, I know it's just, it was just a weird one because it was before any of us had any aspirations to play music or being a band. Just a very innocent, like you were just yeah, we, playing we for just, the sake just, of the love of it, yeah. Yeah, but also we just ended up being the Beatles in this band, and then no, a couple just of years later, nice. really meeting each other, yeah, and and doing that, which is quite funny. But yeah, I kind of got into the Beatles certainly when I was like twenty-two or something like that, and never really looked back. But yeah weird I just always I always remember that just like sailing up Loch Lomond and learning these Beatles songs yeah well obviously sort of speaking about Scotland and speaking about Loch Lomond another question we always ask all our guests on this podcast is about where you're from and how where you're from has influenced you as a creative person so obviously you the band that you're all from Kilmarnock obviously you were at the same school and stuff so I'm assuming that's a big part of the band's identity and probably your identity as a musician and a person I think there's a whole sort of a trope of it like everybody hates where they grow up I didn't particularly hate where I grew up but I knew that I wasn't going to stay there I think what really inspired us on like a different point so like the place that we grew up I thought the people were, were really good and I thought that like I really enjoyed like hanging out with people and it was like a good diverse group of people but I think that's really what helped us was or inspired me was that there was lots of bands at that time. Mm. There was like gigs on like every week. So when we started playing gigs, we would have been like 14. So maybe only four or five years before then, Buffet had put out like their first or oh, their second album or something like that. And they were from down there. And then he yeah, had another band called All My Logic that were sort of like 
in their sort of world and Susiopero and civilized. Like there was lots of things going on, and from about fifteen, Mark, the bass player and father son, would like help put on these festivals, almost so it would be like all dares. And there would be maybe 25 bands playing in three rooms of like the big hall in Kilmarnock. Yeah. But it wouldn't be like just folk from different schools. It would be like touring acts and like big metal bands and big stuff like that. So it would be like at this weird caliber that probably wouldn't see you again until we were like 18. Because it would be like, I don't know, Twin Atlantic and Bleed From Within and The Smiley Smile and all the, the, those sorts of bands from Scotland and Ayrshire at the time, like kind of just before they all broke would come mm. and there would be like, 600 kids in Kilmarnock that would just come out and like it was crazy and we had like there's all our friends from other schools and stuff were in bands and wanted to do that so we sort of had a community to grow up in and we always had somewhere to play even from being like 15 we used to play basically anywhere that would would let us play and we really benefited when we moved so we moved to Glasgow for university and kind of moved the band to Glasgow just a wee bit before then because we had started to get some offers from like DF so like touch gigs or like support here and support there and stuff like that and we were really fortunate that we had a fan base that was in Kilmarnock and Ayrshire and that would travel up to Glasgow because it wasn't that far away so we always felt very supported Mm. do you know I think that we were just lucky that people wanted to come to the gigs and, and that sort of helped us bridge that gap into like being from two places almost but no I think Kilmarnock has, has had a fair amount of the shit kicked out of it over the last like 15 years and it's it sucks but there's lots of really great creative people there it's a good place I always think it's like I'm glad I grew up there and not somewhere like Edinburgh or Glasgow or London or something like that because I think it gives you an appreciation of the things you can do I can't imagine being at any age and not being impressed I can go to shops 24 hours a day yeah no I love that I'm, I'm with you on that yeah. obviously grown up in an industrial-ish town as well yeah. and like you know I'm like that you still got you're like oh this is class yeah pubs open till like pubs 3 in the morning, what? three in the morning yeah. what's going on with this and it's it yeah. gives you an appreciation for that and also I can appreciate why my parents wanted to live there and like have a family there because I think it's a great place to have a family because plenty of it's really old but like plenty of like actual outside do you mean so you can just run about in a field all day and that's like how you how you grow up rather than lovely isn't it yeah woods and like trees and stuff like that yeah and I think when I like turned like 17 I ran away from that as hard as I possibly could and lived in the city centre and then lived out in the south side and I've been I've been here ever since but like yeah I mean I just grew up I was a teenager I was an idiot I was like it was just a place to grow up, but I like I appreciate it more and more the older that I get. Yeah, I grew up in Kilmarnock. It's really interesting that stuff about the big the music scene that you sort of had around you, like such a formative age. It's, I didn't know that. That's that's really interesting. And like, I mean, it's hard to know, but do you think that would happen now? I know it wasn't that long ago, but do you think with the way that streaming and music is now, do you think that would be possible for a band to have sort of an opportunity like that? I do, but then I, I sometimes I think scenes organically grow. And that's an amazing thing to see. I think we're at a point in the moment and have been for maybe a year or so where people are so only interested in their thing. Yeah. It's like pretty cutthroat at the moment, especially with like TikTok and all of that sort of stuff. People are really focused on 
I can't even remember ever having a conversation about the brand when I was like 17. <laughs> do, do, do you know what I mean? Like my own personal brand of this or my own. And also, everybody doesn't get to grow up the same way anymore with stuff like that because every inner thought that they have they're encouraged to share on the internet and share and do that kind of stuff so I, I think all that stuff is pretty fucking damaging to be honest but I think there are pockets of music scenes that still do exist but also I think there was like a big centralization of things when, when we first started playing music you could play in like you probably do like 50 gigs in Scotland mm-hmm. because you wouldn't just do Aberdeen Dundee Inverness Edinburgh Glasgow like there's your big five that's kind of where everybody plays now if people even bother going up past Aberdeen especially bigger acts I think Aberdeen's the is, is the top of where they'll go they'll go to P, P&J but back then you'd you'd do a gig in Glenrothes you'd do yeah. a gig in Kirkcaldy you'd do a gig in Dunfermline you'd do a gig do you know what I mean you'd play in Air you'd play in Kilmarnock and there would be infrastructure for not massive clubs but like just the opportunity to take your sound to a local audience. Yeah. A local audience, and there would pretty much always be a decent enough venue. Yeah. It wouldn't even be like you're playing in the corner of a pub or anything like that. It would be like you would have a sort of broadcast, sleazies esque level of venue in every one of those places. Air used to have like a good couple of like two hundred, three hundred cap rooms. Yeah. So the Kilmarnock had the same. Pretty much everywhere around, used to do like. Kirk, the King's Arms and Kirkcaldy and stuff like that be like 300 people they're going absolutely mental it's like I, I think a lot of that has been, been taken out by like centralisation of like bigger promotions companies and people like putting pressure on ticket sales and that sort of stuff obviously it's a business you kind of have to like remind yourself of that sometimes but yeah I think there's less opportunity at the moment for people to to build a scene or a live scene because almost everything is like an online scene at the moment so you may have like a few like people on Instagram that are friends with each other that tag each other in their stories and do like record sessions with each other and stuff like that I think that's kind of where it is it's living in a twilight zone at the moment and I don't particularly think that until it swings back to being bandy that you're going to get those DIY scenes coming up because there's the thing that annoys me about, or annoyed me about growing up in Kamarnik sometimes, and I see it happen like all over the country, is that people complain that nobody comes. They go like, oh, no one ever comes and plays here. And then someone will come and play in the Grand Hall or that sort of thing. You go like, oh, did you go and see them? You're like, no. Yeah, that's a common one growing up as well. It's like, well, what are you fucking complaining about? For? Like, people are only going to come if people are going to come and watch them. And, like, maybe it's not your thing, but if it's something that you want to encourage where you grow up and, like, where you live, then you have to go and support it regardless. Yeah. As long as people aren't gouging people, I think that's the other thing as well. Nobody wants to go support the local scene if it's the £35 a ticket. No, but that's a big problem as well, obviously, like, for especially bigger acts. Like, you, a lot, you do feel like sometimes if you go and see, like, I mean, for example, the Arctic Monkeys, I love them. I, I can't remember how much the ticket was, but, like, th- that'll be me for that month, probably. Like, I doubt I'll go and see another gig in June because it's yeah. like, you know, it's just a lot of money to commit, especially in the climate we're in now. For sure. So that's probably a big part of it as well, right? People just... Oh, 100%. And people are like, most folk who go to a gig isn't just they nip in and watch the gig and then they leave. It's like, that's their night out of the week or that that's the thing. So that 
40 quid ticket becomes 100 quid yeah especially if we're talking about the big city stuff like you live in Kilmarnock you're travelling into Glasgow you go out for your dinner you get the you know train in train out etc yeah. like, you know, and if easily. you miss the train that's you you got a 40 yeah, quid taxi exactly or so. probably more now Mm. I haven't done a taxi back to Kilmarnock in a while, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a major expense and I wish there was more of a, we, we just did a thing called Independent Venue Week, which puts a focus on like local venues and we played this place in Gallish Yules called the Mac Art Centre and it is stunning, an actual genuinely incredible venue that they really struggle to get people into because as much as people complain about there being nobody ever comes to the borders, Nobody also wants to go. It's the infrastructure. To, the not, infrastructure yeah. is not there to do that. Actually, there is only two buses from the town over. Yeah. And there just isn't the infrastructure to get people around, which sucks. And part of me thinks that it's the way forward is to go actually back into communities because if you could sell 500 tickets in Glasgow and you could sell 100 tickets in Air and 100 tickets in Glenrothes, right? So that's you got Glenrothes, Kilmarnock, and Glasgow, say. Why not spend your time? So you're building that audience in Glasgow, 500 people, but you've got 100 people in both of those other places. Why don't you just flip around there a couple of times to, until you get 300 people in Glenrothes and 400 people in Kilmarnock, mm-hmm. 500 people in Glasgow, and then once you have that sort of band base, then go like, right, we're going to put on a big show in Glasgow. And then you've probably got like 800 people at your Glasgow show. Mm. And also people that go like, oh, they always come back. Yeah, this is great. And then that just trickles down and then you can actually play shows like all yeah. year and I think it would be much healthier to have 300 people in Gnorthus 300 people in Dunfermline 300 people in Edinburgh 300 people in Glasgow 300 people in Inverness like that actually is a much more loyal and yeah. big fan base that would build with you rather than being like oh we're only going to play Aberdeen and hopefully people from Inverness are going to come and hopefully people from Rimfrewry and hopefully like yeah. that sort of thing I think it just especially with with how people live in at the moment and that sort of level of disconnection that people have I think it would bring something to like a local level because that's where people live mm. do, do you know what I mean it's not like no I totally agree they're, they're not like people in Kilmarnock are no different from people in Glasgow and no different from people in Glenrothes it's just where people are like literally locate themselves so why not just go fucking like cater for the, those people and as you say, like when you were growing up, like and you were in starting out in Fatherson, like that was so, it was so it was such a big influence for you, and like yeah. it probably helped you get where you are now. So, one hundred percent, hundreds of musicians across the country that don't have that infrastructure to support them and <clears throat> inspire them as well. Because if no one around you is in a band and doing any, you know, making music and stuff, you're probably more likely to give up as well. Because for sure, because you can't see. Yeah. yeah, I suppose representation is a. I never really ever thought about that as representation, but you're right, it is sort of representation. Uh, and like, class as well, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I've just like, yeah, let's just go and do this. You can borrow my guitar, let's just play a gig. Yeah. 100%. Well, before I sort of go on to ask you a bit more about, like, Father, Son in the early days and stuff, do you have a favourite word from Scotland, and maybe in particular from where you grew up in Kilmarnock? I, I will give you my favourite word from Kilmarnock in a second. The, the word that came to my head straight away was bahookie. <laughs> so like your bahookie is your bum yeah right. it's a good one we had and that I, one before it's a good one I remember seeing some sort of like interview on the street on like some new year thing about people asking English people what bahookie is and someone like is it a soup <laughs> like I just thought it was amazing it's um, great from Kilmarnock it's there's lots of like will not you or am it am you're like I'm pretty good at that am I like so it's not like I am aren't I 
all in one word. So like, I'm in a, that's good, isn't it? Or I'm good at that, I'm in a, that's my favourite. Like, there's loads of Kilmarnockisms. But then I, I seem to have sort of like navigated, because my parents aren't from there, I think I ended up with some sort of weird Visit Scotland type voice. <laughs> Do you know, like some sort of like non colloquial, just Scottish. Yeah. Sometimes I'll say leaving because I spent a lot of time in Inverness when I was like 18. So I'd be like, seven or leaving. Very rarely. 11, I say. <laughs> 11 instead of 11. Let go 11. And I don't know where I got that from, but that's also not oh. a Kilmarnock thing. You know, you just reminded me of before I go on to the band stuff that you did that advert stuff for Tenants, didn't you? Yeah. What, what voice did you use for that? Totally forgot about this. I'm, uh, I'm going off script, but it's fine. It was very much like, oh, what was it? So it was like a stay a pint or something like that. Like, but it was very much like this. <laughs> you talk like that. And it's all about pints of Tenants <laughs> and having a good laugh with your friends. Isn't that wonderful? Like that sort of thing. Where it's sort of a very pronounced Scottish accent. And when you talk with a lot of vigour, people really listen. I think they picked a good person to do that. So I know you told me this when you were in the coffee stand, you hated when people ask in interviews like, so how did the band start and all that? So I'm not going to do that. What I wanted to ask you, do you remember the moment where you were in the band and you thought, my God, this is actually might be possible to do this for like a career. Yeah, and then do it for career happened a long time after. That. <laughs> <laughs> Turned up to do a gig in Edinburgh. Greg had broken his foot, so my younger brother was playing drums for it. We would have been like eighteen, so Greg had broke his foot playing football on the beach, and it was like a couple of days before this gig was meant to be. Mm-hmm. Sam also, my brother used to play double bass, and. He was out on an orchestra thing in Musselburgh. So we drove to Musselburgh, picked him up out of this orchestra camp, drove into Edinburgh to play at the GRV, which is now the Mash House, <laughs> um, as part of like a five-band bill or something like that this guy was putting on. And we get there and every one of the bands plus the, the guy that's promoting the gig is outside at like three o'clock in the afternoon. No one can get in. And we're like, oh... That's pretty strange. Turns out that he forgot to book the venue. He just booked all the bands. Right? <laughs> and I don't know, we'd sold like 25 tickets or 30 tickets or whatever for it. And yeah, we just sort of all stood at this thing. So it's decided that I'll do an acoustic show. So the guy's dad, our parents had an Indian restaurant on Lothian Road in Edinburgh. And one of the dining rooms was getting renovated okay. so just moved everybody and everybody that bought tickets for this gig into this <laughs> dining room in Edinburgh <laughs> meanwhile Sam has to go back someone drives him back to Musselburgh and comes back and played this gig had CDs and stuff like that and one of the girls that was at the gig's dad is one of the heads of DF concerts right mm. so she was like oh give me a CD I'll give it to my dad a week later with this guy called Bruce Craigie helping us out who is still part of our management team and he had sort of had words with her dad after the CD and stuff had got and then cut to two weeks later two weeks earlier we are outside the GRV with no gig playing a gig in an Indian restaurant <laughs> two weeks to a month later we're opening for feeder in the liquid room in Edinburgh and we were like this is it <laughs> this is it we've totally made it this is us like <laughs> now we're like an actual we're like a real thing now this is going to be not very long until Quite we're a jump, yeah. Yeah, not very long until we're really famous and then obviously it took a substantial amount of time to get even where we are just now <laughs> after that but 
Yeah, that was the sort of first time it was like felt like a legitimate thing where you're like, okay, so we've fallen under the wing of people that want to help our career here rather than yeah. our pals who want to put on a gig for us. So I think that was the, the sort of first time. That would have been about 2010. And then in the winter of that, we changed the name to Fatherson. We were called Energy. Ah, okay. With an exclamation mark. And then changed the name to Fatherson because it was the name that everybody liked the best of the names we had. And we had <laughs> done that gig in Edinburgh. Then we had a bunch of names. And then we went, right, okay, Fatherson, that's good. Do you remember any of their names? We didn't thought of a name called The Cautioners after a Jimmy World song. And Little Green after a Joni Mitchell song. And there was a couple of other shite names <laughs> as well like that that were floating around. And then someone said father-son. And we kind of liked it because we thought it sounded like like a second name, almost. So it would be very Scottish, like father-son, like Patterson or yeah, Morrison no, no, or, that, or that sort of thing. And then, because we sold it as Gig and Tuts, then we changed the name. Two weeks later we went on tour with Idleworld. And then that was kind of when we were like, we're fucking like, I'm a dog with two tails here. I'm going to be, this is it. And then it sort of started on a journey of getting bigger and bigger. Like after mm. that. And do you sort of remember the first album? Like, how did that all come about? Like, because that you know that did very well, didn't it? Like number eleven in the Scottish charts, you know, top forty UK indie charts, etc. That was like it, you know, it's doing really well. Yeah, that was just we'd been gigging a lot and had had all these songs ready, and we wanted to to make an album, and we'd be making music with a guy called Bruce Rintoul when he was working at Lo-Fi, so we would like save up money for gigs and we'd go and we'd make an EP I think we released like three EPs or something like that before the album came out and we worked with Bruce pretty much exclusively from when we were 16, 17 and we saved up some money wrote a pitch to Creative Scotland we got part of their demo fund as well so they gave us some money to go in and Gorbo Sound Studio had just opened so we went in there and I was still at university at the time so I did a music course at Strathclyde so we just got like loads of our pals in to just mm. like play on the album and we're doing this stuff and then had a choir of about 30 or 40 people in to sing on the end of one of these songs and I made the island that's on the front cover in my old flat in Govan Hill <laughs> with... So when I first moved to Glasgow I stayed on a couch with two other guys called Ross. So it was like three <laughs> Rosses in, in one flat. That's class. And they are like such massively amazing creative people like really love love those guys and with Daler board and a scalpel we built we just made this island yeah. and we called it Penn Island that was our our thing so we, we made that and then Ross and a photographer called Emily Wilde shot the front cover and we bought like a, a sort of paddling pool almost like a rubberized paddling pool dyed the water blue so it's like a an aerial image of this island and yeah, and then I was... When we were in Corbel Sound, the girl that I'd been out with at the time broke up with me, like, when we were recording the album for the second time. And I was like, oh. And that inspired, like, a two two songs, like, in the studio that just ended up on the album, like, <laughs> straight away. And with our management company, made a label and got some label services, got some people involved. Mm. And then just started punting them. And we, just, like, we sold, like... Th- thousands well like we weren't really expecting that to happen <laughs> but we sold like I, the first run I think we got was like 10,000 and we sold them and it was like, un- like <laughs> where the hell did that come from and 
The Arches was still a thing underneath Central Station, so that's where we did the album launch. And same thing again, invited lots of other musicians to play. So I think at one point there was maybe like 10 of us on stage doing it. And I think that sort of collaboration really mm. was a massive part of, of the band at the time. But no, I, like, I remember that really fondly. I thought it was like, we just couldn't believe we were in like a fancy studio making an album. It was all dead exciting. Yeah. Loved it. Brilliant. I love that you just like took that album cover and you're like flat at the time as well. It's, I love it. Do you remember the first time you sort of did a proper tour, like getting to see a bit of the world? Because I know you toured with some like pretty big names as well. Like Our first like tour outside of the UK was with a band called We Were Promised Jetpacks. Mm-hmm. who I think are one of the best Scottish bands have, that have ever existed and they took us out to, to we did a European tour with them for a couple of weeks and it was just amazing like it was so class I'd been to Berlin and Amsterdam and been a, f- a few places just like in my early 20s and saying that I was maybe only 22 when we went on that tour <laughs> yeah it would have, 2015 yeah so I would have been 22 and yeah it was just amazing just like going to Paris and like just playing a gig in Paris or like just bouncing around Germany and just like seeing all this stuff that I'd never seen before and driving from like one of the most stunning places I think I've ever been in my entire life is that drive from Italy into Switzerland it's just like breathtaking mm. and just like just where all that meets it's just the, it's always like Pandora from fucking Avatar it's just like this you come down the road into Italy and you come down into like Lake Garda and stuff like that and it's just like I just remember all of us actually just like yeah. getting out the van <laughs> to go and look at it and just be like oh my god <laughs> look at where we are this is absolutely amazing. amazing and then driving through the Czech Republic and getting you know 60 fags to uh, sandwiches and a pack of crisps <laughs> for four pounds you're like oh, okay, this is absolutely brilliant yeah yeah it was an insane place and insane time and they were really cool and I was actually thinking about this the other day we played a venue called Kif in a place called Arrau in Switzerland and inside the venue there was like dorm rooms yeah. for the bands to stay in with like their own bar and stuff like that wow yeah so we just had like our own bar it was the first time I'd ever seen like a beer keg machine it was, so we just had like a and it wasn't like a keg for your kitchen it was like <laughs> 60 pints or something like that and pool tables and place to, like and we just had an yeah. apartment inside the venue to stay in and then underneath the venue there was this massive cavern that someone had just put a speaker in and a microphone and that was the reverb chamber for the front of the house desk in the venue. I was just like, I don't know, my, my eyes were just like, I just loved it, like I loved it, it was so, so good. And then we, we managed to be over there a lot over the last sort of five or six years pre-pandemic. I've seen so many amazing things and done so many weird fucking things yeah. like across the place. You told me about this when we were sort of, you know, I used to, just for the listeners, I used to always just go and skive at work on screw, just go and chat to Ross like four or five times a day, having every hot drink under the sun. But you were telling me about a place you played that was like this amazing, like, it was in a cave or something. Mm. I might have got that wrong. There was a place called the Dalhalla in Sweden. There was a limestone quarry. (laughs) Insane. So how that came about was, we were on tour, we got an email saying this band from Sweden we're coming to see us in the Melkveg in Amsterdam. Would we like to like have a beer with them after after the gig? We're like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. This was like the Monday or Tuesday of that week. We had six gigs that week with a Saturday night off, weirdly. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Sunday. And we just like got on with them, just thought it was cool. They had heard, they had I Am An Island and I think Open Book was just coming out. We were maybe on tour for Open Book. And yeah, they were just like big fans of the band. Turns out they're like this massive band in Sweden called Takeda 
And the lead singer, he's actually so famous, he's got two bands, one called Takeda and one called Stiftelson. <laughs> and they often tour with each other because they're both as big as each other. And like one's English speaking and one is Swedish. And they, like, it's insane. We just sort of hang about with them. Turns out their merch guy is from Aberfeldy. So that's why he knows of the band. They know of the band at all. He's called Archie McCallum. He's a musician as well, if you want to check him out. But he's from like Aberfeldy or Aberfoyle, one of those. And yeah, we'll just like blare away, have a couple of beers, don't really think much of it. Be like, lovely to meet you guys, see you later. We get an email two days later to be like, hey, our support band in Malmo has just come out, do you want to come to open for us in Malmo? Right? We're like, yeah, that's it. actually, we were like, I don't really know how we're going to do that because currently we're in Berlin on the Friday <laughs> and we're in Cologne on the Saturday. So it's going to be like a 36 hour drive, like to get there and like yeah. back. Or it was going to be more than that. It was going to be like two and a half days of driving to get there for one day. And they were like, no, no, it's fine. We'll just fly you out. So, uh, so our tour man just got me, Mark, and Greg, and Chris. We just flew to Malmo. And we actually we flew to Copenhagen and drove over the bridge. You've just done that. Yeah, recently. just literally done, done both. That. Yeah, Malmo yeah. and Copenhagen. Yeah, lovely. So. Yeah, so did that and played in this place called the Slagfest, but it was in all slaughterhouses in Malmo. And then we just fostered a relationship with them. And next time they invited us out to Sweden, we did the Dalhalla, which is a limestone quarry in more north of Stockholm, where this orchestra had found the quarry years ago and thought it sounded amazing and decided to make an album in it. So once they made an album in it, someone somewhere was like, right, let's make this an amphitheatre. Mm. To the point where there's a moat in front of the stage instead of a crowd barrier. <laughs> and there's like a geyser around the back and you can just like, there's a rowboat there. So you can actually just like row around the corner and watch the band from like the river and stuff like that. It was like an insane experience. And then when we were there, they were like, oh, do you want to play with us again tomorrow? And we were like, yeah, sure. And we played this place <laughs> called... The Furevik, which was a theme park inside a safari park. What the? I love that they're just like, tomorrow? T- tomorrow again? We're like, <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's, all, it's almost like the bandstand, actually, in Glasgow. Mm. Very similar setup, very similar type of stage. And yeah, it was just a theme park inside a safari park. And in between them shutting the park and putting the gig on, they kept the park open for us. And we just got to go around all the, like, the theme park <laughs> just ourselves, which is amazing. That's so cla- That's class. Amazing. Hello, it's Jamie here. You may have heard this advert several times before, but if not, this is basically just me taking a minute to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast, there are a number of things you can do to help us keep growing. Now, as many of you might be aware, the podcasting landscape is incredibly saturated and, I mean, there's lots of podcasts, we all love podcasts, but it's very difficult for independent podcasts like us to sometimes break through and to be noticed. So doing things like sharing us on social media, word of mouth and just telling friends and family to listen or even leaving us a little five-star review on places like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts go so far in helping us to keep growing. Me and Elliot adore this podcast. We love making this podcast. So if you're able to help in any way by doing something like that, we'd be incredibly grateful, not just for our podcast, but if you love any independent podcasts, please try and give them a wee share or give them a review because it it goes so far. Another thing you can do if you enjoy the podcast as well, and we appreciate that this is a very difficult time, but if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us, you can donate as little or as much as you like to our Patreon page, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash justgetarealjob, or you can click the link in the show notes. Anything you can afford, we are very grateful for. Thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. 
Um, well, I mean, obviously you guys have four albums. So I'm not going to like go through them all, like maybe talk because a lot they'll be able to be here all night talking about the journey and being on. But just to, to touch briefly on the second album, Open Book, like, did you have that pressure after a successful first album? Like, you know, all the old musicians sort of talk about that second album thing. Did you have the fear of that, or did it come quite naturally? Was it quite an easy process? By and large, with a, maybe a couple of songs, we signed a record deal in the May, wrote the album in June, recorded it in September. Like, it was really... We wrote the majority. I wrote a song called Joanna... So I used to work in a pub and they, they didn't have a staff room downstairs, they just had like two toilets. So I wrote Joanna on the toilet, like obviously the toilets are closed, <laughs> and wrote that in the bottom of box on Sogill Street. And then the rest of the album, Mark Greg and I wrote in my old bedroom in Kilmarnock, and then that was it, we are in. Then we went to Rockfield to make that, which was like absolutely mental, so that's where they did like Wonderwall and Yellow and yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody and all that stuff, so we just stayed in this recording studio in Wales for two weeks and like it's been amazing we've worked in some fucking incredible places yeah I don't know I think we'd already we'd put an album out and we were on this journey and the momentum was there and we were just like really excited about it so so no not really and we also we worked with Bruce again on the second one and a guy called Jason Perry who was a singer in a band called A and that just sort of brought a different sort of vibe to it and all of the pre-production of that just like a different kind of way of working a way of thinking so so no I, I actually can't remember that being tough at all the next one definitely got second album syndrome on the third album oh really yeah didn't get it on the second album yeah definitely got it on the third album the third album took ages to write but uh, to be fair like the, f- the second album was quite quick after the first it almost feels like a lot of not not obviously they're different sounds yeah. but like it kind of that as you said that momentum if you did it so quickly after that it probably didn't feel like you'd had much separation. Yeah, I think strike where the iron's hot. I think sometimes too too much time outside of it makes you feel like an imposter. So you go like, I just want to change everything now. I'm <laughs> such an artist. Instead of going like, actually what I think is cool and fun rather than yeah. what I uh, want to be so pretentious for because you can make as much pretentious music as you want outside of it. Why make everything suffer because of your pretense? Do you feel like most people, especially if, like I find this working in script, but most writers I work with, their favourite thing is what they're working on at the moment. Is that Do you very much feel that with albums? Like, you know, Is that how you feel about your music and stuff? Yeah, I think if, if you don't feel like that, you'll just always be looking back. But I also feel like after like two weeks, I hate it. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I need to do something else now. I think there's that sort of like, there's a quick turnover in my mind. And a few things I've done over the last 10 years, I would sit down and be like, this is a great song that I wrote. Lots of great songs, but... Well, thank you very much. But I think there's a few over the piece where I go like, that's fucking solid. If I heard anybody else in the world sing that song, I still think it was as good a song, even though it's bad. Yeah, Yeah, I think momentum's definitely a big thing for me. I like to be in the flow of things and the least amount of time away from it that I could have when it's on a good spin. Yeah, I'd rather just stay in that for as long as possible. Do you think you overthink it otherwise? Yeah, I think you just get in your own way. And I think having an interesting thing at the moment where I think once you start being successful at something, quotation marks, I think you stop practising and looking for new stuff really in case you lose your edge yeah. or like that's your thing like where you're like alright well everyone's really really likes this so I kind of need to hold on to this level yeah, of like yeah. be that misery or 
kinds of emotion that is represented and blah 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 because you're afraid of losing your edge whereas actually you should just be learning all the time because you've still got all of that all of that stuff you can yeah. actually just do right now you can just do mm-hmm. so why not have like loads more yeah. in your tool belt yeah I'm having that at the moment where I'm like I've been playing the guitar for 20 years and I'm going back to basically treat myself like a beginner <laughs> and just work on things because the next music I want to make and the music that I'm writing with other people and stuff like that I want to be fully able to articulate what I have in my head and let somebody hear it rather than be stunted by my own inability to play a G chord <laughs> well I mean I'll come on to the sort of collaboration stuff you've been doing a lot of at the moment in a second but like just to sort of go back onto normal fears like which is obviously the biggest gap as you say you're doing an album every two years and that was a four-year gap obviously the pandemic I imagine is a big factor in that but like did that make you stop in a way like the lockdown and having that sort of being forced into like not being able to play music with your band in the same way having to like do it remotely maybe having to like just change how you did you were doing things like was did the momentum break a little bit yeah I, I think so i think there was a sort of i found the first couple of months of march to whenever it was august 2020 super inspiring because it didn't really feel like i had any pressure on me mm. do you know what i mean i was like well this is just the way the world does now and i can just sort of i felt truly freely creative which i think a lot of people did which is one of the positive things of it it was. I wish I could have held on to that feeling a little bit more, and made a record a year after. Yeah. That, but it was one of those weird fucking times when no one knew how long that was gonna last. So it was like if you got back out of the house in February, and you were like, "Oh, I don't want to make a record yet," then yeah. I don't know. Weird, weird old time for a multitude of reasons, but I think making that record taught me a lot about myself and a lot about how I want to be as not only like the front man of a band, but as a songwriter and as a producer and mm. like how I would build the world that I want to create artistically differently. Yeah. I think there's a lot of good songs on it. I think there's a lot of things I like I wish I'd spent more time doing. But ultimately I think if you listen to it as a record, I think it's good a good record. But it's it's the only one I've ever made where I can like be like I could have had another like ten percent of that on there, mm-hmm. or I could have done a wee about that there. But I think that is also just like a record made when you're at the lowest point you've ever. Yeah, been. it's difficult. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, a very tough question. I'm, I don't expect to have an answer because if somebody said like to me about this podcast, like what episode are you most proud of? Or I don't know what I'd say. Mm-hmm. This one, obviously, is out of the four albums, is there one that you're like that you sort of are most proud of and that you think is your the best representation of the band and what you sort of want to be? I mean, it's a really tough question because it's you're different. They sort of represent you at different points of your journey as well. I would actually say the songs that are more the most fun to play are from some of our parts. I think the album that sort of embodies everything we'd want to achieve is I'm an Island. Mm-hmm. I just think we really did that. And I actually think coming full circle again to thinking about making music, I'm actually returning to lots of the ways I thought about things then, now. And I actually think the art of collaboration and just like doing something that you think is great, not that you think people will like. Mm-hmm. I think is the most confident thing you can do and I miss that level of confidence I think once you get into anything I think if you ask anybody that is accelerating in their career that sometimes the scope narrows into things that you think that you can see a path in and I actually think it's bullshit I think it's a lie you tell yourself that you've got it all figured out 
and I think song wise in terms of crafting songs I would like to make a record like Normal Fears with the attitude of I'm an Island yeah. and I think that would end up being I think that must be so common for most bands because you have that freedom in the first album that you're never going to have in any other because you're just doing it for the pure joy I'm not that you weren't doing that with other of albums course. but it's different because you're like you have expectations now yeah and you also have you feel a sort of responsibility to the people that like your music yeah to make it both familiar and interesting rather than just exactly what you want to do at that time because I think if you went to see Hall and & Oates and they put out a jazz metal album yeah. you'd be like bit strange <laughs> bit of a departure from uh, Rich Girl yeah. but maybe some people would dig it some people wouldn't they would have still written Rich Girl so they'd probably still play it but yeah I think you need to be smart with it I think just the, the biggest fallacy in anything is that you actually know what's going on yeah and I think you shouldn't just go and do if you can play something for 45 minutes that you think is cool as fuck, then at least somebody does, and that's fine. No, that's a very, that's a very good answer. So just the collaboration stuff, what have you been doing with that? Like, you'd sort of, I know you've been spending a lot of time in the studio. How, how is that sort of different to what you've been sort of doing with the band? I think I just get to like work with lots of interesting artists that have got a completely different viewpoint on music or the industry or personality wise and stuff like that I think it's just really nice to properly go into situations with other people that you respect and want to see do well and want to like help their artistic vision or help just add to great songs in the world Yeah, I think it's just cool as fuck I think some people are like super on a path and you want to just like help them or not even help them I think help them is it's actually very uh, condescending. I think be a part of something exciting with yeah. other people. I think be like, look at all this, I've had all of this experience, I've done all these things, I've written all these songs, I play all the guitar this way and I play the piano that way. How do you do it? And then I learned lots of things in that that I go, well, I would have never have thought about going there. And then it just sort of it inspires you in something you don't even actively think about it. Just go like, oh, I would have never, like... I put chords in songs that somebody showed me like three years ago in a session and they're almost littered in everything that I've done ever since. But I don't go, oh, that's a chord because such and such showed me how to play that like that. I just ended up being like, I think that sounds amazing. I have no idea how you do that. Can you show me how to do that? And other people would do the same. And I think that ultimately you just want good music to be made and you want to feel satisfied with it. I think my aim is always to be like, leave a session if it goes well some people you don't gel with and that's absolutely like it's fine normal normal yeah totally just like have a cup of coffee and go on with it that's fine but I want to walk away from things and be proud to be like I would sing that I would love to sing that song I maybe wouldn't release it with Fatherson I maybe wouldn't release it in another thing but I would do a cover of that in a heartbeat if anyone ever released that or I would sing that and open mic and be like this is maybe the best song I've ever written and I kind of want to feel like that about everything that I go into meeting like-minded people and making music and there's a good song is a good song that will never go away 100% so I've got some sort of quick fire questions for you now but they don't have to be like you can like give an answer but sort of just a bit more fun but the first one is like what's your proudest moment of being in Father Son my proudest moment I've got a lot one one that comes to, to mind straight away is Tina Park like 2014 I was I'm there a, that year 
be there that year. Well, that and was hadn't heard of you. Band of the time, sadly. It would have been a great little. Yeah, if you'd have been there, that would have been fucking. Cool. I know. But like, so my my proudest moment was we were we're on like pretty early, one o'clock or something like that, in the Wawa tent. And before we go on, the guy that sort of is DJing in between the bands comes up and goes like, "Look, don't don't worry if it's not that busy. Like, it's a big tent. Do you use it on early? Like, don't don't worry about it." And like in my head, I was like. Oh, Okay, right. May not be that busy and blah blah blah. That's fine. And then we're also just getting ready for the show and everything's sort of getting getting set up and stuff and I'm just sort of in the back of the stage and I'm going like, right, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll be good. And I was opening so I was walking out to start the set on my own and then everyone was gonna come and join me like halfway through a song. And just before we're about to go on, the same guy comes back and goes like, See what I told you two minutes ago, don't worry about it. And then walked out, it was like ten thousand people there. What? Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. And we just walked out and I was like, holy crap. I watched that one back. I oh, watched this so a few. There's, it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. I watched yeah. it before. Really good. It was insane. Really good. Like, just like this. Big crowd. Yeah, it was amazing. And folk are like crowd surfing and throwing things. And there's, oh, like, that, that was just one of those amazing things. So we play, play that show. And then the next day we're playing in Wales. So do that. Honestly, like, on top of the world couldn't believe that that happened and then the next day we go play this festival in Wales and there is like no one there <laughs> like at all nice reality check oh my god so John Newman is headlining the main stage and it's us then a band called Little Matador who was one of the guys in Snow Patrol Side Project and Frightened Rabbit right so we're in the the second stage or whatever and <laughs> when we were playing, Scott came up to me after and he was like, 48? That's what you had in the tent? 48? And then when they came off, I was like, 61? You had 61 you had in the tent? So we both like played Tina Park the day before to like thousands of people and then played in Wales to like the same, probably the same 48 people watched us, watched them and another like 14 people came in to see them and it was just like... <laughs> Fucking hell, right? This is this is the way it is. But yeah, I think that was probably if I go back to a time where I was like, holy shit, that that was it. it was, lots of things. First time playing the Battlelands, like headline Battlelands, just like an amazing thing. An iconic one, yeah. And when ABC was still there, we did a Kabuki drop. I missed that venue. That was oh, class. So I think it was the best venue in Glasgow. Really good. But we did a Kabuki drop, and we had like an entire like light installation in the back of the room, and three times in rehearsal it misfired so the curtain actually just didn't drop like three times in a row and everyone was like right it'll be fine for the gig and then it dropped and it was just like the most insane it was insanely good it was so much fun that's that's a very good answer thank you for that second one you might to be fair you might have answered this earlier because we talked about your tour but best venue you'd ever had the pleasure of playing in best venue i've ever played in is wembley yeah Probably Wembley. And who were you opening for? Uh, Capaldi. Yes, drop, drop it. Yeah, so we were on tour with Lewis Capaldi and Holly Humberston just before, in the sort of March 2020. But also we did like a whole load of arenas and stuff with him across uh, Germany and, and Europe. In fact, the best place I've ever played, which is a place I always wanted to play, was the Olympia in Paris, which was Edith Piaf's like, theatre. Mm. That's like where she would perform and it was just like they don't usually have a lot of bands in especially from like from the UK or, or, or otherwise Deftones were playing in there like a month later which would have been amazing to see but that yeah. was just like the most incredible experience I'd never I just loved it and the backstage had this like just amazing like 
Parisian bar and stuff in it, like a little like guest room and stuff like that. And the load in was actually like three stories down in a basement and stuff like that. And we're just like, yeah. it, it was just amazing. I, I never thought I'd ever get to play there, and I would, that was the most excited I'd ever been to play. Great, no, that's really that's a great answer as well. Thank you very much. A song you wish you'd written yourself. So uh, someone else's someone else's song that you wish that you, that was one of yours. Uh, Young hearts run free. Candy Stanton. That's such a good song, isn't it? I think it's the best song that's ever been written. That's great. Great answer. Never had that one before from a musician. A lyric or phrase that you, again, someone else's, that you really like, that you think of a lot. A, re- a recent one. My favourite uh, lyric ever is by a band from Ayrshire called This Familiar Smile. And the lyric is, no son of mine is going to work for art. And I just think it's like, amazing. I, I love it. But recently, there is... Uh, Lassie called Renee Rapp and she's got a song called In the Kitchen and the tag going into the chorus goes from strangers to lovers to enemies and it's just like in in one sentence like there's an entire story being told and I just think it's really good it's a good one as well funniest band name you'd ever heard well I'm I'm going to see a band I'm going to see a band on Sunday night in Manhattan called Butthole University which I just think is the best name for a band ever. <laughs> I, I, when you told me that earlier, I thought I've got a question. <laughs> exactly, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> of your songs, of all for arms, is there a song that you like are most proud of writing? There's a song called Honest to God on Normal Fears that I think is one of the best songs I've ever written. There's a song called Ghost on some of our parts. That I think is the coolest song I may ever write. Mm-hmm. I just, I, that's like there's a song before that called "The Landscape" and they go in together. They're kind of like the, the brother and sister of that record. And yeah, I would say, honest to God, I think is the best song I've ever written. But I wrote that with my pal Joe, uh, who plays in a band called Amber Run, and Ghost, the Landscape and Ghost. Yeah. And last of the quickfire ones, and an annoying question, because but obviously played for some like big acts, and I imagine met some like cool people over the years. Like, what's the sort of like funniest celebrity in quotation marks encounter you'd you'd ever had? I was in Belgium, and I went to see Stormzy, and ended up spending the whole night with Dan from Bastille, and like <clears throat> all his pals. To the point where that was on the Capaldi tour as well, and our friend had got engaged that day, so she proposed to our missus that day, and then we went to her like engagement drinks in Belgium, and he was like, "I don't know anyone here," <laughs> and I was like, "Ah, you'll be fine, man. That's fine." So we went to this place called like Little Judiths, and we all got kicked out of Little Judiths and went to Judiths. So there was like little Judas and big Judas like on the same street. And me and my pal Andy, like everyone was so smashed. But we managed to fall up stairs and like take this door off its hinges. And we just like tried to like steamingly like fix it without anyone seeing us and stuff like that. It was just an absolute riot of a night. But yeah, that was just like crashing, or not crashing, me and Dan from Bastille at my pal Lucy's engagement uh, drinks. On Lewis Capaldi's too. On Lewis Capaldi's too. It's a good story. I'm just like living vicariously through the, you know, my teenage dream of being in a band, Ross. This is the closer <laughs> I get to it. Just get a real job. I've only got a few more questions for you. Thank, thank you for your time. I know we've been speaking for a bit. We ask sort of everyone that comes on this podcast 
um, obviously the name of it is just get a real job but what's the worst part-time slash real job you'd ever had to work for two weeks over the pandemic i delivered mac and cheese pizzas <laughs> Mac and cheese pizzas. <laughs> Sounds nice, actually. Uh, yeah, it, like the, the people, pizza, not the job. Yeah, I mean the people were were great. They were working in this place, but yeah, it was definitely it gave me a complete. And this is very pompous, but it gave me like a completely different viewpoint on food delivery and like the amount of like hours that go into such little money for people because I'd never really experienced that the boys all worked in like dominoes and with domino driving that would be like minimum wage so if you did 10 hours it would be the same as working in the shop that sort of thing but yeah you'd be out for like six hour shift you'd make like 21 pound or something like that and you'd have driven 150 miles like like crazy when I used to work in pubs someone was sick like all over me like projectile vomited like all over Ugh. me and then I poured their pint away and they started an argument with me and I was like there's absolutely no way you're going to win this man I'm covered <laughs> in your vomit and you're leaving this pub right now but yeah I would, I would definitely say the, the weirdest and worst job I had was uh, delivering mac and cheese pizzas and again not, not the easiest question to answer to condense it down but what are three things you think that somebody would need to be like a successful musician a good work ethic and the ability to realise that you're not going to be compensated like in any other industry or, jo- or job you're going to do because that's just not how it works. The ability to generate ideas quickly and repeatedly and the ability to be resilient, to not be afraid of failure and to sort of reconcile with yourself that 9 out of 10 things will never happen. Cool. What would your advice be to someone that was just starting out that wanted to maybe be in a band that wanted to play music and do that as a living? The best piece of advice that I was given and never took was to just enjoy the journey. As long as what you think you're doing is good and you're doing it authentically, whether it becomes like a chart-topping success Mm -hmm. or you only ever play a couple of gigs, then that's fine. Like, n- never leave yourself in a position where you regret decisions that you made because you made them for the wrong choices. Uh, and also, just don't overplay in one city and just try and build some hype around what you do because it'll help you in the long run. Well, Ross, just thank you very much for, for firstly, being such a good therapist for me on Screw when you made coffee <laughs> yeah, every day. It genuinely helped a lot. And, you know, thank you for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy man, etc. So it means a lot you coming on this podcast and chatting to us. What ne- what have you got coming up next? Is there anything you want to plug? Like, obviously, the all Father Sons music is available on Spotify. You guys are on socials, etc. Yeah. What we're doing, so we're going to be out on tour in September. So there'll be some shows around Scotland and a couple of shows in England. We'll be at Belladrum Festival as well on the Friday night and just keep your eyes open for for other festival announcements over the summer. Brilliant. Thank you, man. Nice. No worries at all. Well, there you go. That was episode 100 of Just Get A Real Job. Feels weird saying that. We're we're into triple digits. But I hope you enjoyed and a massive thank you again to Ross for coming on Chanters. Remember, Father Son are going on tour late in the year. They're also playing a few festivals in the summer as well. All the links to that is in the show notes. So if you go to the website, all the information's there. Be sure to check out their albums and songs as well. Lots and lots of brilliant things to listen to. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, tell friends and family to listen, share the podcast, etc, etc. But thank you again for listening. Thank you for supporting us over the last 100 episodes. Genuinely, I know I said this at the start, but it means the world to us. 
Thank you to Elliot for editing this podcast. Thank you to Amy Dinsdale for doing the artwork for this podcast. And thank you to Liam for doing our promotional posters as well. But have a lovely week and we'll be back again next week for episode 101 of Just Get A Real Job. Just get a real